0: Hey y'all, so today's episode is going to go down a little different. I'm passing the mic over to Lisa to bring y'all a conversation she had with one of her personal heroes, Phyllis Fry. She's a pioneer in transgender law and was the first openly trans judge to be appointed in the United States. It's Monday, September 19th, 2022. I'm Dina Kispet and this is CityCast Houston.
1: So, Phyllis, we have gotten used to now in this decade hearing about people who know that they are not the gender that appears on their birth certificate and that their genitals may not match the gender that they know deep inside they are. And that is your story. But the thing that I think is amazing about you is that you transitioned you started living openly full-time as a woman right here in houston in 1976 so what was houston and the rest of the world like for you then and for trans people in general
2: well it's not very friendly the um uh, lesbian and gay community, they accepted me as long as I was fighting for lesbian and gay issues, but they didn't want to hear about trans issues. Of course, in 1976, there was a, uh, a city ordinance that made me and anyone else like me subject to arrest, and uh, I spent four years lobbying to get that overturned.
1: That was the cross-dressing ordinance, the one that said that, you know, just yes. by appearing in your clothes, you could get arrested.
2: You couldn't wear clothes of the opposite sex. You could get arrested. It was a Class C misdemeanor, which meant a $200 fine, but that was not the problem. The problem was getting arrested, going to jail, getting booked, uh, being paraded naked in front of the other officers and everything else. That's what I heard happened to some of the few trans people that I knew that got arrested. Uh, I never did get arrested, Uh, lucky me. I don't know how I never got arrested because I was down at City Hall uh, frequently uh, meeting with members of city council, uh, lobbying to overturn the ordinance. I went to law school every day And I was out and about uh, a couple of days a week selling cleaning products to the gay bars. All of this is Phyllis. All of this dressed as Phyllis, Mm -hmm. because that's who I was.
1: How did your neighbors in Westbury react when you came out?
2: Well, a few of them were very nice. Uh, Most of them were very standoffish. It was the the kids that were the problem. Uh, You know, the parents said ugly things about me, uh, and the kids picked up on it. And, oh golly, we got our house egged a lot. We got graffiti spray paint on our driveway. We got tires slashed. We used to get uh, uh, obscene phone calls at Christmas and Easter, you know, good Christian religious days. And uh, But there were a few good neighbors who were very warm and courteous to us, and who uh, uh, they had known us for several years before I transitioned. They were just good people, but by and large, it was not any fun. I remember when I finished law school, I told some of the neighbors to spread the word that I was a lawyer, and if these people didn't quit messing with us, we were going to sue them.
1: <laughs> Did that work?
2: Well, it quieted a lot of stuff down. Yeah.
1: <laughs> All right. So your wife, Trish, that's the other part of that we you're talking about. Correct. She was afraid of losing her job as a music teacher, right? If word got out that she was living with you? Yeah,
2: yeah. She, She was a music teacher in the Fort Bend schools. At the time, that was an extremely conservative part of town. When you think about it, the member of Congress representing that district was Tom DeLay. And uh, it was very, very uh, uh, conservative. And she was terrified that uh, at school, some of the parents or some of the teachers or somebody was going to find out that Trish and I uh, were married and uh, she was going to lose her job. And at the time, there wouldn't have been anything that she could have done about it.
0: Wow.
1: And... At the time, you were at U of H Law School, right? Yes. And how were you treated there?
2: Well, uh, you know, most of the kids there, and I call them kids because I was almost 10 years older than they were, most of them were just out of college, and most of them had their own lives, and they knew I was there, and they knew who I was, but they had other things to do. And so, by and large, uh, most of them just uh, ignored me, but uh, there were some who went out of their way to be ugly, and the Christian Legal Society was one of those. They just went completely out of their way to be ugly to me, and that was an almost three-year battle with the Christian Legal Society, and towards the end of my third year, I filed a written complaint, and by the time it was investigated by the faculty, staff, and others, uh, they were put on a uh, probation campus-wide for discrimination which made me feel good, Um, when I filed that, I uh, made copies of what I filed, and I passed it around to some of the law students that were friends of mine, and copies were made, and more copies were made, and it went all over the law school, Uh, and suddenly people started speaking to me, and people who had before were very nice to me, and when I went across the stage for graduation at law school, there wasn't
0: a single jeer or heckle. So,
1: I have been amazed by the progress that I've seen with trans rights in the last 20 years. And I just think your career is a great way to look at it. Um, In 2010, Uh, Anise Parker, the mayor of Houston and your old political ally and softball buddy, she appointed you to be a municipal judge, which made you the first transgender judge appointed in the United States. In 2015, there was this great profile of you on the front page above the fold of the New York Times. And Texas A&M, your alma mater, where you once got fired for being trans, has now named an award after you, and they have got your papers in their archive. Did you ever, in your wildest dreams, in 1976, imagine that your life would end up like this?
2: Oh, no. No, in 1976, I was 28 years old, and quite frankly, I didn't think I would live to be 30. I really didn't, because you got to remember back in, in 1976, The Houston police was not what it is today. And uh, they, uh, uh, you know, Fred Pias was assassinated, uh, a gay activist. He was assassinated by the police. And, uh, and, uh, of course, we had Jose Campos Torres, who was not gay, but he was assassinated by the police. And uh, the police were raiding the bars all the time. And it was just not a very friendly uh, town for uh, someone in the community who was open and especially someone who until 1980 in August was violating uh, a city ordinance for cross-dressing and was subject to arrest. So no, I I really didn't think I would live to be uh, 30.
1: So, but it meant too much. You just couldn't live any other way than being who you are.
2: Well, I think you can say that about anybody. They anybody, even even if they may feel guilty about it or they may, um, you know, have psychological problems and need counseling, everybody needs to be who they are and strives to be who they are and wants to be uh, who they are. Uh, some of them don't make it. Some of them uh, are scared to try. Uh, I was scared. I was terrified a lot of the time, uh, but I had this wonderful uh, woman who loved me and who, uh, uh when i needed to cry she was there when i needed to talk she was there and when i uh, needed counsel and advice she was there and uh if if it hadn't been for her paycheck uh uh we would have not been able to keep our house and if she had thrown me out i probably would have been on the street cuz i couldn't get work even though i was uh, a licensed engineer and uh In 1981, I became an an attorney that no one would hire. Uh, Very easily could have been on the street uh, having to do what other people who live on the street do. And I could easily have contracted AIDS and died a long time ago.
1: Yeah. I am so glad you didn't. So, we've made a whole lot of progress, but... Like in Texas, we are still seeing a ton of fights over trans rights. Like the big one right now is over whether parents can get gender-affirming treatment for their kids. What do you make of that?
2: Well, I think we're making progress because the bullies, and that's who they are, um, are going after the kids now. They used to be going after the lesbian and the gay community, and uh, they survived. And then they start going after transgender community with all kinds of crazy uh, laws that they tried to pass on restrooms and all this other stuff, and that didn't work out. So now they're going for the kids and uh, their their supportive families. I really don't know, but I know it's up to the parents uh, who have got to bond together whether it's through PFLAG or, or other or our other organizations they've got to uh, bond together we've got to like democrats i don't know why people vote republican which is usually against their own self interest but they do uh, these kids are no different in their desires and their feelings than i was i just uh, learned to uh, swallow it. And they are in a period in their life where they don't need to swallow it because they have supportive families and they have internet and they have, uh, you know, friends at school that they learn are like them. And so they're coming out at a much earlier age. And I know it's very frustrating for them. Uh, in the short term, uh, they may not be able to get to be who they want to be until they turn 18. But I think in the long term, uh, the parents are going to win.
1: All right. Thank you so much, Phyllis. It's, it's good to see you.
2: Well, it's good to see you too. I hope in your podcast, you mentioned the book.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> that was Phyllis Fryall, And the book that she's talking about with Lisa at the end there is a biography written about Phyllis's life. It's called Phyllis Fry and the Fight for Transgender Rights. It's by Michael G. Long and Shay Tuttle. All right, let's hit up Carly and see what news she's been reading about.
2: Hey, Dina. This is a weird one, y'all. A Florida family is suing Jack in the Box and its owner company after an employee in one of its Houston locations shot at their car after they asked for curly fries. Here's how it all went down. The family placed their order, and just before pulling away from the drive through they looked at their bag and realized the curly fries were missing. We've all had that happen before, but Anthony Ramos and his family wanted their curly fries. So they asked for them, and allegedly, that's when the employees started yelling at the Romos family and throwing other things into their car, just before pulling a gun. Ramos drove off, and allegedly, the employees started shooting at them. Luckily, no one was seriously injured. The family is suing for a million dollars, though. And it's just crazy to think that all of this started over some curly fries.
0: That's it, y'all. Thanks for listening. Share this episode. Heck, share this whole podcast with your friends and your fan band. We'll catch y'all tomorrow. Dina out. Bye.
2: You got to talk louder.
1: (laughs) All right. Let me. Yes, is this better? And
2: then you and then you back up and you, All right.
1: I will, I will go louder.